Hello and welcome back to Imagine If. Today's episode is going to be a little special. I co-hosted this episode with Don Shelley from A Fork in Time. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Imagine If, the alternate history podcast. I'm your host, Brody Burton. Welcome to A Fork in Time, the alternate history podcast. Welcome back to A Fork in Time, the Alternate History Podcast, although today it's really not just A Fork in Time, the Alternate History Podcast, because I'm joined by, I've been alluding to this for the last couple of episodes, joined today by Brody Burton. Brody Burton is the founder and host of another podcast that focuses on alternative history, uh, and that is the Imagine If Podcast. So Brody, I'm really excited to have you with us here today, and I'll let you uh, speak now and introduce yourself, and maybe just tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what prompted you to start Imagine If? I guess that's been, what, three, four months ago now? Yeah, it's, it started in the beginning of July. So, um, cool. hi, I, I'm Brody. <laughs> that wasn't already implied. Um, so, really, there wasn't a whole special story about how I came to start the podcast. It was really, I just had too much time on my hands and I wanted to do something. This is something I've always had an interest in, in podcasting and that. And as for alternate history, up until recently, I didn't have a lot of experience in it. Mostly it was just the first exposure I had to it, I think was in third grade when I read very much alternate history, which was similar in a lot of ways to, um, Trying to remember the name now. It's on Amazon Prime. It's oh, uh, like uh, Man in the High Castle. Man in the High Castle. Yeah, very similar in a lot of ways. A few differences. Big one was the fact that, of course, it being geared t- towards kids, it, it included superheroes. So obviously, very alternate. Then recently, I've just been. I'm very passionate about history and. I'm a very creative person, I like to think, at least. And it's hard to be creative with something so set in stone. And it really gave me the opportunity to explore some of these alternates. Yeah, I I, I do agree with both of those things. Your knowledge of history certainly plays through. Um, And I probably listened to about two-thirds of the episodes that you produce, so I feel like I've heard a good sampling there. And I agree with the creativity part. In fact, what I remember most about your very first episode is the fact that you did something which I think is a very effective hook, and you do this on a lot of episodes, which is opening with something that almost feels like it could be, you know, the opening to uh, to the movie or the opening to this, you know, to whatever it is. It feels dramatic, uh, so that it brings some some excitement and it brings some um, some energy <laughs> to history. And just like you, I, I've been long fascinated by history and the fact that I think one of the best ways for us to understand what we know about the real history is to imagine the history that could have been. That's sort of what eventually led to my interest in a, in a, in a, uh, in alternate history, uh, read, you know, some of Turtle Dove's novels, I guess, was one of my first exposures there, Guns of the South, probably being his most famous novel. That's been mentioned a number of times on our episodes here. And it was really, uh, in the, the conversation with my daughter, Alexis, who's the, the, the co-founder of A Fork in Time, who also has a love of history. Her love is absolutely British history, but she's well-versed in everything else. And I guess it was uh, two things. It was Man in the High Castle, the, which of course is based on uh, the very well-known Philip K. Dick uh, short, short story novella. And then also at that time, there was a show on NBC whose name has completely escaped me uh, that's been here uh, about three or four years ago that was uh, along the lines of time travel and altering history. And so we've been talking about, hey, we want to do this podcast thing together. And then we quickly realized we both have a love of history and this idea of alternate history. And so we, we thought we would go down that path. So here's the question though. Here's the thing. You know, I'm, I'm in my uh, 
early 50s. My daughter's about to turn 30. Brody, you're behind us. How old are you? I am 14. I am, I'm a freshman in high school, actually. Yeah, so that, again, I'm impressed with the podcast. I'm impressed with your knowledge of history, but what I'm really impressed with is the fact that you've chosen to do this at the age of 14 and you're pulling it off. Uh, I was maybe a little bit audacious as a, audacious as a 14-year-old, but I don't think enough to do this, even if podcasting had existed back in, that would have been the early 80s, uh, the 1980s. And, uh, but I'm really impressed with the fact that you, you've done that and you've carried through on that. So let me just say, I, I value that and appreciate that. And also as being from a different generation, it gives me a lot of faith and hope in the younger generation when I hear folks like you doing what they're doing there, which is also one of the reasons I wanted uh, to connect with you once you had reached out to us. And you're the one that suggested this joint episode, which I think was a great idea. I think we would have come around to it as well. So anything else you want to share with our listeners about your background or what led to Imagine If? No, thank you, though, for that. That's one of the best introductions I've ever heard given to myself. You, you can record it and use it on your college entrance uh, applications, which are still ahead of you, which is I might do that. for myself. I might do that. And All right. What you said earlier about me, my ambition. This may sound cheesy, but I'm going to quote Hamilton. There's a million things I haven't done. Just you wait, just you wait, right? Yeah. Yeah, cool. So we're going to take a little break here, which we normally do about this point here on a fork in time. And we're going to hear from some of the folks that help uh, underwrite our show. But when we come back, what I really wanted to expose a fork in time listeners to was really just the style of how you do uh, your shows and your podcasts, because we talked about a little bit off podcast, Brody, we take a different approach. You tend to have a much more detailed, thorough, finite alternate timeline. Uh, the folks that have listened to A Fork in Time know that we sometimes do that, particularly with some of our guests, but a lot of times we will talk about the generalities that result from the change. So it's two different styles. Uh, but what I wanted to do today, what we talked about doing is we're going to, when we come back from the break, it'll almost be as if you've just dropped into an episode of Imagine If, for the first time, you'll hear how Brody approaches things. And then afterwards, we'll sort of do a little uh, unpacking of it, deconstructing of it. That's a little bit more in the way that we do things in a fork in time. So hope you stay with us. And when we come back, it'll be the imagine if portion of a fork in time. Would groceries delivered to you in as fast as one hour save you a trip to the store? Instacart makes that possible thanks to personal shoppers in your area who hand-select items based on your preferences from the stores you love. And shopping multiple stores is possible on a single order. Instacart picks the freshest produce and even keeps your eggs safe, all while finding everything you usually buy, providing smart suggestions for new items, and even highlighting deals to help you save money. And now you get free delivery on your first order over $35. Let Instacart know we sent you and help support our show by following the link in the show notes. Instacart, groceries delivered in as fast as one hour. Thanks for sticking with us here on A Fork in Time. Again, very pleased to have Brody Burton with me here today. Brody is the founder and host of the Imagine If podcast. We were setting that up and talking about that a little bit before the break, so we don't need to do it again. So as promised now that we're back from the break, uh, I'm going to imagine that the fork in today's podcast is our, our listeners have been magically transported over and they've just tuned in to Imagine If. So uh, with that uh, introduction, Brody, the microphone is yours. All right. Thank you. So this is actually coinciding with an episode. I'm going to release this on my, on Imagine If actually. So we're doing a series on alternate U.S. presidencies, and the one I had planned for today would be William Seward. William Seward was the, was the nominee of the Republican Party in 1860. He was born in 1801 in New York State. His father was a slave, home, was a slave owner, but Seward became a very strong abolitionist. He would lead the radical Republicans later in his life. He was elected in the New York gubernatorial race in 1849, he served as the New York, in the, and he served New York City, rep, not New York City, he served representing New York State in the U.S. Senate in 1852, and he served there until 1861. 
He became Secretary of State under Abraham Lincoln, and he's most famous for his purchase of Alaska, which was also called Seward's Folly, although later became much less of, of a folly when oil and gold was discovered there. And he was stabbed the same night as Abraham Lincoln was assassinated as by a associate of John Wilkes Booth, if you're interested in conspiracy theories. He was in a coma for several months before he woke up. One of the things I personally believe he was most significant in doing was keeping the UK and France from supporting the Confederacy during the Civil War. And in addition to serving under Lincoln, he also served under Andrew Johnson during the period following the Civil War, although given during part of that, he was in a coma. So the fork in this episode, I guess, is we're going to... This may sound kind of odd, but Abraham Lincoln has been diagnosed by modern by modern doctors, historians, as having had clinical depression. And this may sound crazy, but this idea has been brought up in several places. Notably, I found one, an article in The Atlantic in October 2005 by Joshua Wolf Shank detailed how Abraham Lincoln's mental illness could help him during the war. So with that being said, from this, it's going to be very hard for the Republican Party to nominate someone who is depressed for the presidency. It's not exactly a good combination. So they nominate Williams H. Seward for the presidency. And then in opposition to this, the Democratic Party nominates John C. Breckinridge with um, Stephen Douglas as vice president. So with this, William Seward and his running mate, Edward Bates, a former House representative from Missouri and attorney general, and he became attorney general in our timeline, ran against the Democrats, John C. Breckinridge and Stephen Douglas. Seward very much won the a vast majority, 180 electoral votes to 120, winning every free state, but he lost every slave state. This balance was, it, it resulted in civil war. So, in the, so, in addition to the Confederacy in our timeline, Missouri, Kentucky, Delaware, and Maryland secede from the Union. To quote Abraham Lincoln, I'd like to have God on my side, but I must have Kentucky. That was how important these border states were. So the first challenge of the Seward administration then became, where's the U.S. Capitol going to be? Because Washington, D.C. is now a Confederate territory. Philadelphia is a stone's throw away from the Confederacy, and although it would seem like New York City would be the logical choice, riots broke out in New York and New Jersey calling for independence, and it became a less desirable option for the U.S. Capitol. Boston then became the capital because it's about the only major city not in revolt. So the plan adopted, proposed by Union General um, Winfield Scott was the Viper Plan, to break into the Confederacy and destroy it quickly. This would be by storming through Maryland, crossing the Potomac into Virginia, the Carolinas, and Georgia, and capturing the key populous areas of the Confederacy, and then at that point, leading a campaign into Texas to break off the food supply, a two-pronged attack to essentially tear down the Confederacy. Seward's next decision would be who to make a general. Winfield Scott, the author of the Viper Plan, declined to serve because he was too old and he would probably die during the war and he would die during the war. And Seward, being who he was, would not dominate a Democrat for the office as, um, shoot, I'm forgetting his name now. He nominated Ulysses S. Grant because he became the most logical choice. 
So the first Union campaign then became to retake Maryland, Delaware, and Virginia. So two forces came into what became known as the Delmarva-Richmond campaign. The first force moved down the Delmarva Peninsula to launch an atoll, capturing Delaware and that part of Maryland, and to eventually launch an, an attack on Norfolk to stop the Confederates from building a navy. They were stopped at Dover and no further campaigns on the Delmarva Peninsula were commenced. The other half, the Richmond part of the campaign, aimed at capturing strategic targets, big cities essentially, Annapolis, Baltimore, Washington DC, and Richmond. The force under Grant managed to capture Annapolis and Baltimore, but failed to capture DC and the campaign fizzled out there. The first Confederate campaign, however, the first the Confederate strategy would be to make themselves sustainable to outlast the Union. In order to do this, they would need to control the food supply. And most of the food was for the Union was farmed in the South. However, large portions were farmed from California. It became a key part of the California economy. So they moved from New Mexico into Southern California to attempt to capture it. They captured Southern California, but were stopped at Sutter's Mill, primarily from volunteers from California and from the Utah Territory, which became significant for reasons later. So with those reasons being, the Utah Territory, composed primarily of Latter-day Saints or Mormon settlers, began to revolt. They had had various animosities against and various abuses, I guess you could say, committed to them by the Union, by both sides really, and they began to sue for independence. With this, California really had no reason to stay in the Union. They were very independent-minded, so they broke off. However, the Confederacy still occupied Southern California, so they broke off with Northern California, Oregon, and what became the Washington Territory to, to create the Republic of Cascadia, named after the Cascade Mountains that go through the region. And then Native Americans began to control the Great Plains. And the Confederacy lost West Virginia because West Virginia had not sued for independence from the Union. They had very much liked being in the Union, so they left the Confederacy. And with this, winter came and you can't, like, it's not just that you can't invade Russia in the winter, you can't invade anywhere in the winter. So the campaign season ended. The next year though, 1862, Louisville and Nashville were the targets of a Union campaign. The Union attempted to move forces from West Virginia into Kentucky to capture those cities. However, they were stopped at the capital of Kentucky, Frankfurt. They also attempted to launch a campaign into Missouri. They launched it from Iowa as a base to kick off from, and they eventually reached the Missouri River, capturing Kansas City, Independence, and St. Louis. The Confederacy began a new campaign to try and force the Union to surrender. So they did this by attempting to capture Philadelphia. They were able to recapture many targets that were lost during the Delmarva Richmond campaign, and they did accomplish their goal of capturing Philadelphia. They also launched a campaign against Ohio, where a single, where the force that had actually defeated the, Louis, the Union forces in the Louisville and Nashville campaign recaptured West Virginia and moved north to Ohio. They were stopped at the capital of Ohio, Columbus. At this point in the war, it seemed like the Confederacy was up a little, I guess, like um, a football game where someone's only up by a single touchdown. A Union force then moved to, in the next year, a Union force retook Philadelphia and moved south through Maryland and reached Richmond, this time actually capturing the force because the Confederacy's forces were mostly in Ohio. The Union then launched a campaign continuing from the previous Missouri campaign into the Ozarks, capturing there 
and attempted to reach as far down as Little Rock, Arkansas, but they were stopped when winter came. And then the Union began a strategy of attempting to blockade the South. The use, however, their, the Union Navy was destroyed by ironclads, developed by the CSA in 1862, but wouldn't be developed by the Union until 1864. Then the Confederacy attempted to launch a campaign into Pennsylvania with the goal of retaking Philadelphia and potentially even capturing New York City. However, they were stopped at Gettysburg. The next year, 1864, the Union attempts a camp another campaign in the West, with the Union sending forces from Missouri down in an attempt to cut off them from food supplies in Texas. They captured Louisiana, but failed their initial attack on Texas, which was which after a massive loss at, in the Battle of Beaumont, and which killed Ambrose Burnside, the leader of the Western forces. William T. Sherman took over. Rather than retreating, however, Sherman launched a total war campaign going into North Texas destroying the supply lines to the east in the Battle of Waco. He moved southward and destroyed San Antonio, and then the siege of Houston begun, began. At that point, Confederate forces in Houston surrendered, and Houston was burnt to the ground. The Confederacy then attempted, at the same time as the Union campaign in Louisiana and Texas was going on, the Confederacy attempted to launch a second attack from Gettysburg in an attempt to reach Philadelphia or New York City. They did capture Philadelphia, but were stopped from reaching New York City in the Battle of Princeton. Robert E. Lee was killed in the Battle of Princeton, and Stonewall Jackson took over. However, the real ending of the Confederacy happened in Mississippi this year, when a, a massive slave revolt in Mississippi and Alabama organized themselves into a Union regiment and they captured Jackson, Mississippi. Stonewall Jackson met up with the slave army and from that point it really seemed to be the end for the Confederacy. So from there, in the next year, Union forces moved through Mississippi and Alabama and reached Atlanta, Georgia. They won a major engagement there before moving to Savannah, again led by Sherman, who had previously served in Texas. This led to Sherman's destructive march to the sea. They crossed the river, dividing Georgia and South Carolina, and attempted to capture Charleston, the Confederate capital, and but they failed at this. At this point, the Union attempted again to move on Delaware and captured it, recapturing Philadelphia and recapturing all the things the Confederates had won in the various Yankee campaigns. And they moved as far south as Virginia. The next year, the Confederacy finally fell with a Union strike on Richmond and eventual capturings of the Carolinas. At this point, the Union began to turn their attention out west to Deseret and to Cascadia. However, at this point, Britain and France, tired of seeing the bloodshed in the U.S. and knowing that if a war to break out, they would be drastically short on cotton, a major export of the Confederacy, intervened in the, in the war and finally put an end to the revolts in the U.S. In the Treaty of Montreal, signed in Canada, Deseret and Castadia became U.S. states with Southern California becoming what was left of California. Amnesty was given to Cascadia and Deseret. Slavery was abolished in the U.S. And there was acceptance that the CSA had seceded, but was readmitted and newly freed African-Americans built communities in the Great Plains, settling there to avoid the racism in the South. 
William Seward then began a process of reconstruction where slave states would be readmitted slowly after the Civil War once 75% of the citizens had taken a loyalty oath to the U.S. In the long-term effects of a William Seward presidency, Edward Bates ran for president in 1868 instead of Ulysses S. Grant and won. And there was no assassination of William Seward because John Wilkes Booth wasn't close enough and there was an effective reconstruction, meaning there was no need for a civil rights movement in the 1960s. Don, that's all I had for the imaginative side of the episode. If, if you have anything yeah. else you want to add to that. No, I was going to comment on a couple of things. And I wish all of our listeners could see uh, the outline that I have in front of me, which you just went through there where you thought through and you know, one of the things that we talk about on what on the a fork in time is a lot of times we will talk in generalities. And to me, one of the things I've enjoyed about listening to your episodes and seeing this time on here are thinking about the specific things and also thinking about how things can echo through history, even if they were different. Uh, I do take I do take umbrage, I must say, with the fact that my native my hometown Houston gets burnt down uh, in much the same way the, the fate of Atlanta. Uh, but it's, uh, it's interesting to think of the idea because eventually in your timeline you led to, to Sherman having the similar march to the sea in Georgia, but that was just uh, essentially act two of something similar that had happened during the Texas campaign. And um, I, I think it's interesting to me, and I'd like to know why you, why, you, why you talked about focusing the war a little bit more west, because we talked about this off podcast. Um, ju just that question. Uh, what was intriguing to you about having more of the military action be not in the traditional, you know, the traditional theory of the Delmarva, and you have plenty there in the Delmarva, you know, in Delaware and Maryland and Virginia, but, but why, why the focus a little bit more on, on West in the alternate timeline? So my personal reason for the focus was that in this time period, previous to this time period, it was a period of Western expansion where the West is heavily focused on U.S. history. However, during the Civil War, um, places that had previously been centers of U.S. history, like California during the Gold Rush, or Oregon, or Utah during um, westward expansion, they kind of just fell to the wayside. And the real reason for this is the Confederacy was morely in the southeast of the U.S., although it's, it's what we traditionally call the South, but geographically it's in the southeast. Right. So my reason, and then for within the timeline, the reason it made sense was with all the border states going to the Confederacy, um, suddenly you have to recapture Missouri in order to sustain food supplies because I've never led an army or a nation, but my best guess is one thing you do not want to have is a shortage of food. Right. Well, I think the other interesting thing to me about that, which is why I was intrigued by that, we talked about this a little bit off podcast, is just also the difference in, um, in styles of leadership. Uh, because uh, as you mentioned, the, the actual plan in the real timeline was often referred to, it was referred to as the Anaconda plan. And remember the idea there basically was to blockade the South, basically just contain, right? <laughs> At the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, because the theory was there that by population and by the economic prowess of the North, the industrial capabilities of the North, that you could, you know, just, just like siege warfare is often brought against a city, you could essentially put the, the CSA under siege um, and eventually you're going to win out just because you have the superiority there. And I think that was also part of more, I think that would, that's also the difference, talking about your jumping off point here, a Seward versus a Lincoln scenario. You know, I think Lincoln never wanted to be a wartime president. I don't think any president wants to be a wartime president. But the idea that Seward was willing to be and endorse a plan that was much more aggressive, the Viper plan, uh, versus the, um, the Anaconda plan, if you make that decision early on in the war, I do think you change the, the, the tenor and the nature of the war pretty quickly. That's just my take on it. Yeah, the real reason I, well, I named it the Viper plan entirely because of the Anaconda plan. Um, if you look at it historically, the Anaconda plan never really was achievable. 
partially because the advances made in naval technology I had mentioned ironclads, but also because there's a border with Mexico and you can't blockade Mexico without starting a second war, which is not not good for this time. Right. I, I do see what you're saying though with the, no president does want to be a wartime president. There, there may be a few exceptions to that. <laughs> and that, that probably is true. I say that generally giving everyone the benefit of the doubt. There probably are a few that actually say, I'm good with this. Yeah. I, I can imagine a few generals might prefer wartime to peacetime, but Theodore Roosevelt probably would prefer wartime. Right, yeah. TR certainly didn't mind, wouldn't have mind being a wartime president. Was he a wartime? Right. He no, no, well, Spanish American War was over, so he, he sort of comes to rise to that. I mean, there, there was conflict going on, but not, not the direct conflict. He falls nicely in that gap between, at least in American history, between the Spanish American War and then, of course, the outbreak of World War One. Um, Tupac could be president during the Spanish-American War, though. Like, not having a U.S. president march up San Juan Hill. <laughs> a little bit of a different story. The other thing that struck me there, you mentioned, I think it was McClellan that you were thinking about, who was a Democrat, who was the early commander of the Union forces. Yes. And, uh, you know, yeah, Winfield Scott, of course, had, had, had risen to prominence in the Mexican-American War. Everybody sort of knew who, you know, Win Winfield Scott was and of course, the, the phrase that we have, great Scott, you know, sort of refers to him because of just his physical stature and size. He was this enormous commanding man. Uh, McClellan, exactly very much the opposite of, of Winfield Scott in terms of a smaller, you know, more diminutive, had been a politician. Um, you know, the, the story that's often told there is that later, you know, Grant and Sherman and some of the other Union generals who are more aggressive, you know, Lincoln was constantly find, trying to find Union generals who are willing to fight. And McClellan is, um, is, there's a little bit of a change in terms of how he's viewed now in history. But, you know, the general way that was always expressed to me as I was learning American history was that McClellan trained, was a fantastic organizer and trainer and a logistician in the sense that he trained the army, the Union army that was eventually successful under Grant's command. Uh, so you might argue that McClellan was not willing to endure the horrors of what civil warfare warfare looked like. It's just about the most horrific age of warfare in terms of just technology had reached the point of being incredibly destructive on the offensive side without the counters to that defensively. And so it's a very, um, it's a very brutal form of war in the middle of the 19th century. And it was tough for any general to see what was being endured by his troops and still want to press things forward. You know, that, there's that famous thing that Lincoln supposedly said about Grant. And somebody was talking about how, how Grant was, um, you know, was willing to fight and, uh, but, you know, somebody said, but he's a drunk. And, you know, Lincoln famously said, you've probably heard this, Brody and Lincoln, you know, find out what he's drinking so I can send it to the rest of my generals. I have and, heard that. Yeah, and because the idea there was you had to take advantage of the thing you had as an advantage if you were the Union Army which was you had a superiority in terms of numbers and technology. And yes, it was going to be a tremendous loss, but you, it was one of those dilemmas of you can end the war faster by suffering more on the front end. And, you know, McClellan is often described as being the guy who, who, uh, who trained this wonderful army that was scared to use it. Uh, and so if you think about someone like a Grant taking command earlier, you know, the, the trade-off for that to me, the fact the note that I wrote here was, would Grant has been, been as successful without the army that McClellan trained, just like you can argue the other way around, is McClellan viewed improperly by history because he wasn't Grant? Does that make any sense? Yeah, they, it makes sense. I would they sort say of play against each other. McClellan's an interesting, interesting character. Um, you have Abraham Lincoln, a Republican, making his superior general a democrat which i don't think i could see currently that situation working out then again i hope currently we don't get into a war because that would be pretty bad um i think the army mcclellan trained in some ways yes but this was still the army like the u.s had an the U.S. had just fought a war with Mexico 12 years prior, so there still are a lot of veter veteran troops. Right. 
that being said, a large number of those are now in the Confederacy and are in the Confederacy is a lot more martial culture than the North. Um, I think he probably I would say maybe. I mean, it's a really bad answer, I know, but McClellan's army that he had trained, it's hard to train an army effectively without showing them what war looks like. I, I, I believe you're exactly right, is that uh, it's one thing to drill on the drilling ground, it's another thing to maintain formation when you're having musket balls whiz by your head, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that. The other thing I thought that was interesting, I just wanted to get some insight was, I, I know you're, you're, I think you said your family is originally from California. So you know, your yeah. knowledge of, of, of Western history is certainly probably better than mine in the United States. But again, this idea, and I think you pointed out well, that we sort of just pretend, well, nothing really happened in the Civil War, you know, west of the Mississippi almost kind of thing, uh, which is not true. There were battles that were fought out there. Uh, but just how different things could have worked out if you have a situation like, a truly independent uh, set of republics out in the West, you know, uh, Deseret, as you suggested, or this Cascadia thing that would be Northern California. And ultimately thinking that through, I, I, don't, I don't know if it was in your notes here, so I'm just going to ask this, in, uh, in your timeline moving forward, when they, they're readmitted back in, do they remain separate states moving forward in your, in your concept, in your mind? They do remain se separate states. And going back to what you had said, Western Mississippi, the final recorded battle in the United States Civil War actually took place. It was a naval battle in Alaska. Right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's, e it's, easy, it's easy to forget that. It's also easy to forget that a lot of the Union soldiers, uh, well, Confederate soldiers, who, of course, you know, were in the U.S. Army before they joined the Confederacy, their military experience had either been in the Mexican-American War or it had been in the West uh, in the various, various skirmishes against Indians during the... Uh, during the westward expansion. Most of that happens after the war, but some of it has certainly happened before. And there so again, skirmishes during the war, yeah. And yeah, and, and, so, and so one of the things that jumps out at me and your idea of, you know, these two uh, republics that, you know, sort of rejoin or separate states that are along the west coast there is California is a very large state, but it's a very diverse state in terms of its economy and its politics in modern sense. Uh, you almost could argue much. today that if you split California into multiple states, Northern California is different than Southern California, right? Yeah, I, so, saw, go ahead. I saw one map once that proposed breaking California into six different states, and it was, it, it was, it was pretty insane. Like, the, the number of regional differences in California are very big. Like, you have, like, politically, the North is very liberal. The Southern California and Western California is a lot more conservative, and... Right. The South is a lot more, well, of course, Los Angeles is a lot more liberal, but places like Orange County, which is where I'm actually from, is a lot more traditionally more conservative. And, but now, of course, California is, the, no Republican's going to win there for a while. Right. And, 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 and so, so we, when, we, when we look and we say California now, again, where this is, where, to me, it's one of the wonderful things about an alternate history exploration is that when we say California now, we immediately go to, especially for Americans, we immediately go to our 2020 mindset about what California is and what California has been. If you go back over now 150 years back and you break California up into multiple parts, these two parts, you break the West Coast up this way, the first place you assume is, well, things would have just played out in a similar fashion just with different borders. But that's ignoring the fact that there may have been different um, forces that would have occurred over that period of time that would have caused them to be very different. And uh, so I think it's easy to say, well, we'll just imagine that the politics of California as we know it today actually works pretty well with the division of this, you know, division of, um, uh, of Deseret back in, you know, in an alternate 1860. And that's probably true unless it's not. Actually, because of what would have intervened in between, right? So if this were to have happened, so the reason I chose to break it up the way I did, in the 1850s, there was a proposal for the state of Deseret, which would have been a massive state, which would have been Nevada, Utah, Arizona, parts of California, 
would have included everything from Los Angeles to Wyoming. Some right. massive thing. And then when, when I, Cascadia, if this were to have happened, California right now is very Catholic, you could say. I mean, you don't go to California and think of the Pope, but if this were to have happened, Southern California, for example, probably would have had a very large Mormon population just being in Deseret, which would have been very culturally Mormon as Utah is today. Right. And Northern California probably would have matched up a lot more with Oregon than it would have with what we think of California today. To the point of what you said, California hasn't always had wildfires. Like, there are obviously changes that have occurred over time. Right. And, 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 and even, even thinking about those states that you've mentioned, instead of having 12 senators across or, or so across those states, if you keep the structure of the Constitution, this very large Deseret is, is represented by two members of the United States Senate. Mm -hmm. And that, and that, you know, and so now let's say you have a Senate instead of a, of a hundred, you know, so we end up with maybe 35 states instead of 50. That also changes in the sense that you have a Senate that's 70 versus, versus a Senate of 100. And so, you know, the, these small changes, you know, the maps matter. I, I, you know, as most of the listeners to our podcast know, I'm a Texan, you know, there's this provision, there's this, this concept for Texas where Texas uh, you know, was granted admission to the Union sort of as an equal. It was a republic that, you know, was uh, was brought into the United States, but also with the, you know, this often touted uh, right to break itself up into five states if it ever wanted to. And so I remember growing up as a kid, we would hear about, you know, what would be the advantages of doing that? Well, you would lose sort of this, you know, unified understanding of who Texas was, except that you would pick up a couple of extra senators, which wouldn't be a bad thing, right? In, uh, in the way that that would break up. And so, Again, to me, one of the things I've enjoyed about a lot of your episodes, just you know, moving away from this, but others, is you reimagining the electoral map, but also reimagining the um, the political map in a lot of your alternate history scenarios. And um, I'm actually looking over at a book on my shelf. You may have seen, uh, I think it was on back on, it was on the History Channel. You know, back when they used to have history on the History Channel. Mm -hmm. um, but it was uh, the it, the book is called How the Shapes How the States Got Their Shapes. And if you're familiar with that book or familiar with maybe have seen the, uh, the, the, the television series that, that was based off of that, you know, the, how the United States, how these 50 states and where their borders are came to be is an interesting, interesting story. And oh, as, you start, as you start imagining alternate histories where those lines are in different places and they're grouped and joined together in different ways, that changes a lot. I will say two things on that. It's very hard to change Hawaii's borders. <laughs> and the second thing, I'm going to have to reimagine the scenario to get 50 states because if it's 70 senators, it's going to make percentages really hard. Yeah, exactly. It's going to make statistics terrible. We have 100 yeah. for a reason. Yeah, I hate when, my, I hate when my, my political math gets messed up where it's a little bit more challenging. <laughs> um, but, but I agree, and, but it, it, I think that is an interesting concept because, uh, again, I'll use an example that's it's close to me. I know we moved a little bit of field off here, but again, this is part of what we do on a fork in time, is uh, I know you live up in, in, the, in, in northern Texas, or Yankee, Texas, as I call it, but uh, have it being here in, in the Houston area. But, you know, a lot of people, when they think Texas, and we have global listeners, when they think Texas, they probably imagine something that looks a little bit more like New Mexico or Arizona. That's their global image of Texas. You know, cowboys and big open plains and- San Antonio even with the Alamo, like- Yeah, yeah. And, and, and by the way, all of that's true. Go to West Texas, you will see all of that you want to. And if you drive through it, you'll see it for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. You can um, even kind of see it up here in North Texas. Like if you look correct. at the geography of Dallas, it's skyscrapers, suburbs, farms. Right. Well, and then if you get too much west of Dallas, you start getting into that sort of cattle territory plains type of thing that, that this, the, the southern edge of the Great Plains, but moving towards the west. But the reason I bring that up where I am in Houston, very much um, uh, uh, pine forest, trees. Uh, it's a little bit, parts of it are a little bit more like Louisiana in terms of bayous and uh, then, you know, then, uh, then being dry like you may think of as San Antonio or west. And the reason I bring that up is that a lot of times the 
political boundaries that get drawn either that are countries or that are states or, or regions or provinces inside of countries can be very artificial in the sense that they don't always follow the geography in a way that, that produces interesting outcomes. Uh, one of the things I've often heard about Houston, the reason it's sort of unique, is Houston sort of sits right between the dividing line of what has traditionally been the American South and what has been the American Southwest or the American West. If you get much further west than Houston, you're in great cattle country. If you go much further east than Houston, going back to the time of the Civil War and before, you can act, you're actually, it's possible to go cotton in that, in that part of Texas. Yeah. And so Houston sort of sits in this unique blended area where it's moving away from the geography and the, um, and the climatology of the, of the traditional South, as you would tell it was really is more of the Southeast. Uh, but it's also not quite fully the climatology of, you know, the cattle part of Western Texas. And so what that means is for population center inside of the state of Texas and how the politics of that works is the fact that that line is not drawn where Houston falls in Louisiana or that line is not drawn where it's further east uh, into Louisiana, picking up more of Texas matters for the, the economy and the climatology and the geography, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, and, like east of a few things, east of Houston, it's very, there's Beaumont, Beaumont, mm -hmm. sorry. Um, if that were part of Louisiana, you can get Louisiana having a much more oil economy. And That's then correct. two other things, sorry for bringing down your home city, number one. <laughs> okay. Number two, when Texas was originally admitted into the Union, it had as much territory going all the way up into Wyoming. Mm -hmm. And right. the contrast between Houston, one of the U.S.'s biggest urban areas, to Wyoming, the state with the smallest population, it's, it's very drastically different. Correct. And a lot of other states like California, New York, and even Florida, which is part of the Confederacy in the traditional South, but in Miami, the southernmost part, it's not very Southern in the cultural sense. Yeah. Well, I, I also also appreciate what you said about, you know, you know, imagine a Deseret here where what we think of as being, and none of this is in a derogatory way at all, what we think of as being more the political and religious tenor of a modern day Utah, again, with it, with its heavy, not that there are certainly, not that there are not LDS members all over the United States, but certainly we think of that being the concentration of the Mormon church in terms of percentages of population today. But again, if you spread that influence out across a larger area, because it happened at a different time where that would have been much easier to do, you do have that relationship, whatever you want to say about it, the conservative versus liberal spectrum in the United States and what that means compared to conservative versus liberal in the world. But you, you start changing, when you start changing the religion of a territory combined with its geography then combining that with the political boundaries, you start changing, you change the politics because you change the philosophy that's predominant in a state. Mm -hmm. And that makes a big difference. You know, yeah. would, 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 Holly, would Hollywood be Hollywood today if it were sitting in Deseret? Um, Maybe, it would, <laughs> but I don't know. Hollywood as in like the sense for a filming center, sure, but as in the sense of it being all the scandalous and or the drama that I guess you could say goes on there. It's it's Hollywood. Yeah. Um and it's in California, so there's there's gonna be drama. Um my guess would be probably not. And really I wanna even say it's the religious aspect directly connected to the political aspect, although in many ways it is like Utah, which is considered the center for the Mormon church, is only a quarter, has only about a quarter of all global, of the whole global LDS population, whereas, right. and even the U.S. now makes up less than half of the global LDS population, but because of the early impact of the church in Utah and Idaho and Nevada and Arizona, those areas are a lot more conservative as the Western United States, like California and New Mexico and Colorado, and even Nevada now are becoming increasingly liberal. If my guess would be that if the Latter-day Saint Church never went into Utah, 
Arizona would not be a swing state. It would be in the Democratic lib liberal column, actually. Yeah. I, 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 again, there's lots of individual cases we could look at there, and I don't want to pull us off in that direction too much, except yeah. to say that we tend to for, we tend to assume that a lot of things. This is what I've come to realize in doing our podcast over the last year is I want to assume that there's some things that would not be different because you change something big or small back a ways. Uh, but the realization of how those ripples move through time, they can move through in ways you weren't expecting, I guess, is my point. And, uh, you know, for your, po your point, which I loved, and that's where I close out on this, unless you have something else to say, you mentioned that under your, your view of a, of a sewer-led reconstruction, uh, mm -hmm. that it's a, it's a kinder, gentler reconstruction. And so as a result of that, you know, what is the long-term change of, uh, of things like you mentioned, there's no, I know you specifically mentioned this, it's on your outline. There's no need for the, what we eventually come to as being the civil rights movement in the 1960s. And the reason is the things that set up the need for that didn't exist if you had had a different form of reconstruction after the Civil War, where much of that animosity and change in slavery being abolished and the change in economy and culture and politics as a result of that gets resolved several issues issues several generations before so the issues don't play out in the middle of the 20th century those issues are still going to play out they just play out much earlier in a way that things have stabilized long before our real timeline has them stabilizing to any degree so actually the difference in reconstruction between William Seward and Abraham Lincoln wouldn't be that much but if you remember John Wilkes Booth killed Lincoln and right. Andrew Johnson a southern correct Led reconstruction and that change in leadership and then the eventual change to Ulysses S. Grant is probably what messed up reconstruction from the start because it kind of set the Democratic Party whose base was in the south to coming back sooner and at this point they, they were the party who supported slavery they were the party of the south so and William Seward's reconstruction wouldn't have been possible if he had been killed by Booth, but because remembering back the capital's in Boston now, right. rather than Washington. And John Luke's Booth was from Maryland, and it's very hard, and it, it's easier to get to D.C. from Maryland than Boston from Maryland. Yeah, well, and not, not only that, but we had during the war, I guess some of the first major battles there in Virginia, you know, folks rode out uh, on, on their wagons and basically did a day day picnic trip to go out and see the battles there and from the capital, <laughs> you know, from D.C. In, in Northern Virginia, because that's how close it was. And then that ended real quick when the Calvary came in, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, that's another question. I, you brought that up. I'm curious now, in, in, your, in your alternate timeline here, uh, conceptually, do you imagine that the U.S. Capitol comes back to D.C., or is it permanently relocated in some way? So... I think there would be a permanent relocation. However, the reason Washington, D.C. is the capital is the result of the compromise between Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton between the northern and southern portions of the U.S., with D.C. being a central area. So if D.C. is no longer the central area because there's a lot more states in the west, I think you could see the capital being in Missouri or Kansas or somewhere far more west because it's more of the center of the U.S. and that might Cascadia or Deseret, which are now states, might enjoy that and it might prove valuable in creating a transcontinental railroad instead of going from east to west. It might be west and east meeting up in the middle. Right. And it might well, end up in, well, there wouldn't be a I don't know. I don't know. And then D.C. would probably go back to Maryland, which is where the territory originally came from. So I think it'd be permanently relocated to probably somewhere around Wichita or Topeka, Kansas. Compared and, and, Alexis, to and Alexis and I speculated on this, I think, in the episode that we did about... Um, uh, the War of 1812, the burning of D.C., when they had to take the, the city on the run and uh, at that point. And, you know, if you relocate the U.S. Capitol, <laughs> seems like a small thing, right? But it's a big thing. To your point, if you put it somewhere in the, in the central United States, in modern-day, you know, modern-day Missouri or Nebraska or 
someplace like that, commerce then changes because of where you place your capital, um, just because it will. Um, the interstate exactly, yeah, just because of where political power is. And to me, that's an interesting concept. I mean, one of the things that's amazing to me is we're you know moving up on an American election here in 2020. I don't want to chase that rabbit, but I've I've been looking at you know various maps of uh, you know the electoral college results where the states are colored one color or another. And you know the amazing thing, of course, you see is in a lot of those maps they have to put off to the side along the east coast because of the size you know the size of a Delaware or the size of a Rhode Island. You know, you can't accurately represent it on the map when you're doing it to the scale to show the rest of that. That's because those states are very small states established when they were. And then you look at a comparison like Texas or a lot of these other, California, that are geographically, not just population, but geographically so large. And, you know, one of the things, I know I remember seeing a map at some point when I was in maybe middle school or high school, which were these proposals for sort of redrawing all the boundaries, you know, getting down to maybe like, in fact, that's, I think that's the first place that when you, I saw Deseret in your, uh, that's the first place that I remember seeing in that map was, you know, a reconfigured imagining there of, you know, what if these states were all just about equal size geographically, how would that be different? And the answer is it would be different. You would not have, you know, two senators representing uh, Rhode Island, which about, which by the way, fits into either of our two metropolitan areas multiple times over uh, mm -hmm. very easily. Uh, versus having a, a state as large geographically and as populous as, say, California or Texas, also represented by two senators. You know, the way that that plays out and the electoral vote impact of that separate from the House is also an interesting thing to do. So good. It's actually something interesting just to throw it in there. You had mentioned California and Texas compared to Rhode Island. In this election in 1860, I actually had made a map, you probably saw, saw it, of what the electoral college results would be and texas california and rhode island all the same number of electoral college votes right despite that size difference so i right. think population growth would probably be different i think you'd probably see with houston not being there it, its growth might be stunted it, it might lead to just a different street design like what happened in atlanta right um or maybe dallas or san antonio becomes a new center of Without a doubt, uh, I mean, the thing that immediately pops to mind for me is uh, is the later thing. If there's, you know, Houston was not very large uh, in in this particular point of time, but Alexis and I on, a, on, a, on one of the episodes talked about if you don't have the the Galveston hurricane, the 1900 Galveston hurricane. You know, Galveston was a city very much on the rise. Uh, it eventually gets after that that storm and the devastating impacts of that, it gets overtaken. Uh, by the little community about 50 miles north of it called Houston. Uh, but if there's no Houston to sort of take the place of that, does Galveston get rebuilt? To your point, does San Antonio or Austin or Dallas rise to prominence? Is there some other city we don't even know the name of? You mentioned Beaumont because there, you know, the oil strikes had happened there shortly before that. Again, these are, these are small things maybe in the big flow of history, but in the local flow of where I sit or where you sit or where somebody else sits, sometimes those smaller flows of history change can be equally as interesting. Mm -hmm. Or even Waco to that point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, a more centralized thing that's there. Anything else you want to mention or talk about, Brody, before we shut things out? Um, just real quick here on the end, the fact that I had the Civil War go to 1866, late 1866 instead of early 1865, the impact of the border states would be really big. And that's all because of the difference in ideology between Seward and Lincoln, which is the big thing I was kind of aiming at. Abraham Lincoln was more moderate. He actually did not support abolishing slavery. He just supported limiting in the West. Seward was an abol was a very hard- was a, was a staunch abolitionist, abolitionist, yeah. Yeah, a radical Republican. Right. And then with that, with William Seward, with the threat of the radical Republican being in office, the Democrats, instead of splitting into three factions, they unite behind Breckinridge and Douglas, who are both presidential candidates on the Southern and Northern Democratic tickets. And then there is John Bell, who won a few states too. Right. So that, that leads me to ask, uh, well, that leads me to ask, want to ask two questions. <laughs> um, I think it's important for you to hit upon the fact you, the border states are also one of those things that gets overlooked. I think it's, you know, in Civil War history, you know, as 
when we're studying it, you know, we, okay, yeah, we, these are the four states that, you know, did not succeed, but could, they, had, they were slave states, but did not succeed, uh, secede from the Union. Uh, but I think, I think it is important to realize in that famous quote that, you know, Lincoln apparently said was that, you know, he, he was about preserving the Union, whether that was all slave, <laughs> all free, or whatever it was, his goal was preservation of the Union. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, that's why it's only later, I think, that we come around to the Emancipation Proclamation where that's something I think he personally, you know, was, had some leanings towards, but was certainly not a staunch abolitionist, but it was politically convenient to do that and, and, and for the purpose of the war. And so again, that's that personality thing that plays in. So uh, I appreciate that too. Yeah, I want to throw us in, maybe this will be the last thing, but sure. not all the border states are necessarily equal. Like, Delaware is also, is obviously going to be a lot less significant than Missouri, the gateway to the West. Or, or, or Kentucky and its influence on the Ohio River, which is a, a major navigable river. I, I think exactly. I mentioned this earlier. Abraham Lincoln said, I'd like to have God on my side, but I must have Kentucky. Right. And, and a lot of that was because of the need for the Ohio to get access to the Mississippi. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and not have that be a contested... <laughs> Uh, as contested a territory, although there were a number, in fact, that's where a lot of uh, Grant's early, uh, Grant was more in the Western theater in the real timeline, and, and Sherman as well underneath him, that's where they got a lot of their experience. Well, Brody, if you are up to it, I, I certainly hope that we will do something similar to this again, and, and have you back on either just uh, on our, one of our normal episodes just to talk about something, or maybe to do something like this. What I'd like to do before we close out the show from our side is I'd like for you to tell folks where and how they can find Imagine If. Uh, well, I'll certainly have links in the show notes, but if there's anything else you'd like for them to know about how to find you and uh, get connected with your podcast, this is the time I'd love for you to do that. So my podcast is available on most major podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple, Google, uh, Stitcher. It's not on Pandora. It's not on YouTube. I will say that. And then I also have a website for it, which it's a Google site, so I'm not going to try and even remember the name <laughs> of my head. Okay, and, I'll, and I, will, I, I included that before, and I will include it in the show notes to make it easy for folks to link over yeah. to. So, uh, I really need to update that more often, though. <laughs> it, uh, but believe me, as someone who, who does this, I know exactly where that's coming from. And the other thing I'll just mention to folks, I, I love the title. I like, I like Brody's graphic a lot, too, with the, the historical figures with the question mark. If you go looking for just Imagine If podcast, Somebody had some type of environmental related uh, podcast that went by a similar name at some point. So you'll find it much easier if you're doing a Google search because I had to do this as well if you stick in something about history. So uh, obviously if you're listening to this podcast, you have the advantage of the, the show notes to click out of. But if you're looking for it on Google, uh, throw in history or alternate history with your Imagine If and Google will be much happier in finding it for you. <laughs> So uh, discovered that, discovered that not the hard way, but discovered that on my first Google search. Well, oh, second Google search helped once I threw history in there. Yeah, so, it started really, I, I, I wish I had known that there was another podcast by the same name before I started. <laughs> Understood. It would have uh, been, it been uh, better before. And I planned on naming the show What If, and then I found out Marvel was going to do an alternate oh. history thing with their superheroes by the same name. So I decided not to avoid being called a ripoff. Yeah, or, or to incur the, the wrath of Marvel lawyers, which is also probably a good thing at the age of 14 to avoid as well. Well, that, so, that's uh, really scary. Yeah, exactly. Well, again, I, Brody, I, I, I'm glad we were finally able to connect and do this. And, and Brody had reached out uh, uh, some while back when he was starting his podcast. So I appreciate him doing that as well. And as we've often said here, and we, we mean this, and hopefully this is a good example of this. We we don't think of you know, other podcasts in this genre as being competition. This is a community. It's just another way of doing things and, and spreads what we do. So I was happy to have Brody on and for us to do sort of this crossover episode. This is something that's a little bit before your time, Brody, but I'm thinking about what almost every NBC show in the 80s and 90s did. They always had these crossover episodes uh, between various things. So I sort of, in my head, this is what this has been. This has been a fork in time, imagine if crossover kind of thing uh, to get both audiences exposed to each other. And of course, for us here at A Fork in Time, we can be found at our website, which is www.aforkintimepodcast.com. We always like to say the A is important and the podcast is important to make sure you get to the right place. And there you can find our back library as well. In addition to the show notes, and we'll certainly put a link there uh, for, uh, for the Imaginative Podcast. You can get it directly from the website if you want to. 
but there's lots of ways for you to find it over to Brody's uh, to Brody's podcast. And I would encourage you to subscribe to it and listen to it, and uh, and give him the feedback. We we really enjoyed the feedback that we've received in the year plus now that we've been doing it. I know that he'll enjoy it as well. So. Brody, uh, unless you have anything else, I'm going to go ahead and close this out. And uh, we won't say goodbye. We'll just say until we do this again. Fair enough? Yeah. Um, right. I will say my listeners, I'll, I'll link to Fork and Time on my show show notes as well if I can remember to do it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Good deal. All right, Brody, again, uh, uh, I value you, value what you're doing. Appreciate the time you've given us here. And again, this will not be the last time we do this. So I'm looking forward to the next time already. And so with that, if I don't do this, Alexis gets on to me. We'll just sort of close out as we always do here on a fork in time when we remember to do it by reminding you of that little Yogi Berra baseball adage that we've twisted for the alternate history world, which basically says, if you encounter a fork in time, our strong suggestion is to take it. Uh, hope to talk to you next time. Thanks. Thanks for listening to A Fork in Time, the alternate history podcast. Learn more about the podcast at www.aforkintimepodcast.com. Join us next time.